Romans chapter 15. So we are almost, almost done with the book of Romans. We'll be finishing this up next week. I've definitely enjoyed going through this book, uh, uh, this study, preaching through this uh, book verse by verse. It has only strengthened my confidence in what we believe and um, more confident than ever. I was already assured of it, but there's nothing wrong with getting more assured. There's nothing wrong with growing in these things. And so a lot of good stuff. And I hope while everybody's gotten a lot about salvation and that it's strengthened your faith in that, we want to make sure that we don't ignore what we learn from 12 to 16, where we are learning what we need to be doing as saved people, as Christians. There is certain behavior. Uh, there are certain uh, things that God expects from us and wants from us. And we ought to take these things serious as people who have been freely given eternal life without any works, as people who are guaranteed heaven no matter what. And not only are we guaranteed it no matter what, but the Bible gives us assurance of that. The Bible does not want us doubting the fact that we are going to heaven. And as much as false prophets and Calvinists and all these people like to cast doubt on people's salvation if they're not living right or something, God doesn't want us being that way. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible does not challenge you in your salvation. It, it assures you of your salvation if you're believing on Christ. It will challenge you if you're trusting in your works. And it, but it'll make it very clear. In fact, you're, go, you're going to hell if you're trusting in your works. But as people who've been given all that, when we get to the parts in chapters 12 through 16 where we're seeing what God wants from us, we ought to look at that and we shouldn't have an attitude. I'm not doing that. We ought to be like, you know what? I'm in. Count me in. I'm thankful for what God has done for me. And unfortunately, you know, not all of the ten return to give glory to God. You know, a lot of people don't. But hopefully we are those people who are wanting to give something back. And so in verse 1, we're continuing to see things that God expects from us as believers. And it starts out saying, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. And if you remember last week, we talked about not doing things that are offensive to other people. We don't want to be so caught up in what our flesh likes that we end up doing things that could offend weaker brothers. Even though we have liberty in Christ, we don't want to use that liberty to and, and let it cause, uh, be a cause for stumbling in a weaker brother. We ought to have this mindset, this mentality of edifying other people. And what I want to talk about tonight, too, as we go through this, is, is that ministry mindset. Every member of a local church ought to have a ministry mindset when you too many people are coming to church today with an attitude of entertain me okay now that's one thing for a brand new christian it's one thing for a lost person a lot of people are coming to church thinking i want you to wow me i want you to i want you to bless me i want you to make me feel good i want you to you know, feed my soul. And some of those things are okay, but they're not necessarily what we're here for. The, one of the main reasons that we ought to be here is because this is where we serve. This is where we, as a church too, we kind of regroup because hopefully you're being a Christian all week. Being a, All of us should be full-time Christians. We don't have to necessarily be full-time in the ministry where we're getting paid by the ministry 
but we should all be full-time Christians. It ought to be a priority in our life. And church is a place where we kind of regroup because it gets tough. You know, just living life sometimes. And sometimes there's special challenges that we deal with as Christians when we live in a wicked world. And so we need to understand when it comes to church, it is important that we have as members of a church a ministry mindset where we are not thinking about what is going to please me, but how can I please other? Let everyone please his neighbor for his good to edification. What can I do to help edify the people in the church today? Say, so I can't do much. Actually, you can. Okay, for one, I'm edified when you're here. I mean, it really helps when you have people to preach to. It makes, it makes a big difference. So understand, your being here definitely edifies me. Isn't it important for pastors to stay in the game? A lot of pastors are quitting. You want to know why a lot of pastors are quitting? It's not usually because they've got a big congregation supporting them and backing them up and encouraging them. It's usually because they're getting torn apart by their congregation. It's usually because they're serving alone. It's usually because just nobody's interested in the things of God. And these guys are getting discouraged and they're quitting. And that's not good. We all need each other. And so what he just said here, again, this is in context of what we covered last week about doing things, about not doing things that might please ourselves if it's something that would be offensive to other people. And again, like I said last week, in our culture, it, it's, you know, there's not a whole lot we have to worry about with this. There are some things, but really not a whole lot. But this church, that I, and I think too, we're going to see evidence of this here too. I think, I think Romans 15 is where we kind of have strong, some of the strongest evidence where we can see that this church was made up of Jews and Gentiles. And so if you do, if you got a church and like half of it's Jews and half of it's Gentiles, then, you know, you have two very different cultures living amongst each other. The Gentiles, they don't think anything of lots of stuff where the Jews they're sticklers about everything. They're offended by everything. You know? And so the thing is, Paul's trying to get a mindset in them. Hey, let's not let there be division. Let's not just care you know, or you know, have an attitude of, I don't care what the Jews think. This is what I like. Or I don't care what the Gentiles think. This is what I like. You know what? We need to think about each other. You need to have this attitude of edification. He's trying to promote a ministry mindset. And so I hope our church will always be one that isn't full of sensitive people who get their feelings hurt over every little thing. But I also hope that our church will be a church where if someone comes in who is weak, that they will be loved and received and that people will look out for them. I hope, and then I hope we can help them grow out of getting offended by everything and being super sensitive. So verse 3 says, For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. So Christ was the ultimate example of someone who had a ministry that was not about pleasing himself, but it was about helping others. Jesus is always the greatest example of everything. So it says, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And we are to learn from the examples that we have in the scriptures. We should go to them. 
We should find inspiration. We should look and we should see the things Jesus did. We should see the way he loved people, cared about people. When we read these passages and it says how he looked upon the multitudes and he had compassion on them, that should cause us, when we look on multitudes of people, that we have compassion on them. When he, we see him weeping over people, when we see him caring about people, we ought to look at that and say, you know what, I want to have that same attitude. When the Bible talks about that rich young ruler and, and how Jesus looked at him and how Jesus, it mentions specifically how he loved him. We should read those things and it should say, that's how I want to be. That when we see the way Jesus was with sinful people who would come to him, that's the attitude we ought to have. When we see sinful people coming to the church, we should definitely not have the attitude of that Pharisee who prayed in the temple, you know, thanking God he wasn't like that publican. We should see the way Jesus was with people like Zacchaeus and say, that's, that's going to be me. That's how I'm going to act. That's how I'm going to, I'm going to behave. All of these things are, they're specifically written so we could do these things so we would know how to act. That's why we have the stories that we have. They are there, not just so you can know what's right. It's amazing how many people will go around and they will pontificate about how much they know about the gospel, how right they are on the gospel. And I'm glad they're right on the gospel, but at the same time too, hey, you know, there's some other stories in the gospel about how Jesus loved people, how he was kind, how he was compassionate. How come you don't have any of those traits in your life? Are you just ignoring those things? You know, we like you like all the condemnation stuff. You like reading about him treading the wine press of the fierceness of his wrath, but you don't like the parts about him where he's pouring out grace and supplication. Both are in the scriptures. And all of these things are there for our learning because God wants us having a ministry mindset. God wants us while we are here on this earth to be having this attitude of how can we be a help? How can we minister to other people? And so we read stories about his life. We read interactions that he had with people. And these things are there. They were written for us. Even Old Testament stories are like that. Stories of David and the way he was. You know, good, good examples that we have. We're supposed to learn from the patience of Job. James referred to that. We remember the patience of Job. We're all supposed to look at these things and these things should guide how we act. And so he says in verse 5, Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, receive ye one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now, we talked a little bit about this on Sunday morning, I believe it was, where we talked about being like-minded of one mind. But remember, he's saying this too, specifically to a church where you had some Jews who, think about this, okay? It would be like, imagine if you had a bunch of Amish people that got saved, okay? A A bunch of Amish people that got saved and then a bunch of drunken Catholics, that got saved. And then they all started going to the same church. Okay. Now understand when you start preaching, uh, let's say dress standards, the Amish save people, they're going to eat it up. They're already doing all that stuff. But these, the drunk Catholics that you got saved, they're gonna be like, what? <laughs> We're supposed to dress a certain way. You know, when you're talking about, when you're start, when you start talking about certain behavior and just certain cultural things, those Amish people, they're going to eat it up. They're going to love it. But that, that Catholic crowd, they might not be as anxious to get on board with those things as like, as like your Amish people. And the thing is, 
whether they, the, whether your former Catholics, you know, jump on board with those things right away or not, they are still brothers in Christ with the Amish crowd. And the reality is the Amish crowd ought to receive them with all their baggage and the former Catholic crowd, they ought to receive the Amish people and not have an attitude like, oh, they're holier than thou and they think they're better than us and all that. No, you accept that too. And let me tell you something, just like people with the high standards sometimes look down on people with the low standards, sometimes people with the low standards, they treat, you know, people with higher standards like they're Pharisees or something, and they're even worse. Isn't that what everybody always does whenever you call them out for any sin? They'll find another sin that you do, and they make it out like it's the worst sin in the world. And it's just like, you know, let's not play this game with each other. How about you just receive each other? And so this is what's going on during that time. If Paul is preaching about certain aspects of the law, the Jews are used to that. The Gentiles are not. And the Jews need to be patient with these Gentiles. The Gentiles need to be patient with the Jews. And so he's telling them, wherefore, receive ye one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Hey, Jews, if Jesus could handle you, you can handle those Gentiles. And Gentiles, if Jesus could handle you and all your baggage, you know what? You ought to be able to handle the Jews and the fact they're a little self-righteous and a little snobby about some stuff. That's what he's basically doing right here. And in every church, we have got to learn how to have that ministry mindset that I am not here to make everyone like me, but I am here to edify. I am here to minister. That is one of the things that we are supposed to be. We should all be ministers to each other. This is the mindset God wants us having. And so we should strive for unity. And let me tell you too, I would not be above going along with the standard. If I went to a church and like maybe they had a standard that was a little bit higher than mine in a certain area, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be above going along with that standard for unity's sake. I don't think that's hypocritical. You know, we should see edification and unity as more valuable than some carnal thing that we hold dear. You know, I think some churches, they go a little overboard on some standards. But at the same time, too, it's like, hey, if that's what they really believe, if that's what they, if that's where they've taken a stand, you know what? I'm fine with that. I don't need to bring every, I don't need to make everybody just like me. In fact, you know what? If I need to be a little more like them for edification, I'm fine with doing that. You know, I've, I, some people have this attitude too. Cause like, for example, in Bible college, in Bible college, they always have higher standards for their students than you do for everybody else. And they do that for just kind of uniformity for, there's a lot of reasons to do that. You know, there's just some things you don't want to police in Bible college. And typically young Bible college students age, you know, they're in their you know, 18, 19, 20, 21. And when people are that age, they're typically idiots and they typically want to get involved with every new fad that's out there. So like one very common thing that a, a rule a lot of Bible colleges have is no facial hair. Now, why do they do that? Is it because it's a sin to have facial hair? No, but if weird new beard trends start, they don't want to be policing all that. It's too complicated. So they just tell them clean shaven. Okay. Now, listen, if, if I went to a Bible college and they had that rule, I would shave my face every day. Okay? When, when my son went to one, I told him, I was like, you know what? You need to follow whatever rules they have. 
And sometimes they were sticklers of thing. If, if your hair was touching your ears at all, or you know, they, if it wasn't tapered right, they had a bunch of rules. And then you know, and if and if you, if you didn't follow them, they'd fine you. And of course, every oh, I can't believe I got fined for this. Hey, nobody made you go there, you know. And if if and but then here's a funny thing too. Some people have this attitude: if you go to a Bible college that has certain standards, that you need to follow them for the rest of your life. Otherwise, you are a phony when you're in college. It's just like. No, we were following these things for unity's sake. You know, I've gone, I've gone to places, I've gone to camps that have had higher standards than I do in certain areas. And you know what I do? I follow their rules when I'm on their turf. I don't think that's me being a hypocrite. I'm not pretending that's my standard, but I am, I am just, I'm doing it for unity's sake. I'm not going to go there and then just break the rule just to prove that I can. And, and, you know, that's a rotten attitude. And a lot of times people do. They get this attitude in church that, you know, I, I know everybody in the church is against this, but I'm just going to go flaunt my liberty in this area. Listen, you shouldn't do that, especially if it's going to cause problems and it's going to cause drama in the church. And it might. And if it does cause problems and drama in the church because of something weird you're doing like that, it's because the church is immature. The church ought to be able to handle that. But guess what they can't? So you shouldn't have an attitude. Well, I'm going to blow the church up with this. Then no, you ought to edify. You ought to edify. At the end of the day, what I'm trying to say is everybody just needs to think about everybody else and think about others instead of thinking about ourselves, which is what Paul said. We're not trying to please ourselves. We're trying to please others. And so in verse eight, he goes on to say, now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. Now, what does that phrase, minister of the circumcision, mean? Well, in Galatians 2, 7, it says, but contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, and the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. You want to know what the gospel of the circumcision is and the gospel of the uncircumcision is? Now, if we were a retard Ruckmanite, what we would say is there are two different gospels. Baloney. Okay? No, what it is, he's referring to the ministry of the uncircumcision, meaning... Paul was specifically assigned to go to the uncircumcision. That was his ministry. That was his dispensation, you could say, to go to the Gentiles, where Peter, his ministry, his dispensation, his administration, these are all words that, can, that, are, that have similar meaning to each other, was to go to the circumcision, to go to the Jews. Hey, and so there's people I know who they have a dispensation of the gospel to certain countries, to certain ethnic groups. We often call them missionaries. What, is, what, what, what does that mean to have a dispensation? It means they've been given this ministry. They've been given this administration. They've been given this dispensation, this economy, this job, this role, whatever you want to call it, to go to a specific group. That's what that's talking about right there. That's what that word means. And so Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God. Who did Jesus go to in his ministry? 
he went to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's who he went to in his ministry. And so, uh, one of Jesus' roles was for him to personally minister to the Jews. And watch this. To confirm the promises that were made unto the fathers. And how long did Jesus confirm the promises or confirm the covenant? He did it for three and a half years. And then he was killed. And then he, of course, continued through the work of the Holy Spirit there in Jerusalem. But so what Paul's about to do next is randomly hit several verses showing the inclusion of the Gentiles in the promises to Israel. Because it was Jesus did not have a ministry to the Gentiles. The Mormons are wrong. Jesus did not come to America and preach to the Indians. I don't know where they came up with that, but it just it just didn't happen. Okay, his ministry was to Israel. That was who Jesus went to. So, um, and, and you know, and there he he came across some Gentiles here and there along the way, but his ministry. And and it's okay for someone to have a ministry to a certain group. Now, just like Jesus didn't refuse to preach to other people, you know, it would be weird if it's like, oh, I only got a ministry to these people, and then somebody else wants to hear the gospel. is like, no, I've only been commissioned to go to this group. No, that's ridiculous. It's okay for people to have focal points wherever they feel the Lord has led them. And we should, and it, it is... Uh, you know, I, I, I hate this and I don't hate it at the same time. But it's like you have people who God has called them to certain types of ministry. You know, they are, you know, maybe to, uh, you know, they have a desire to start church and sit in churches and cities. Okay, that's great. That's the ministry God has given you. But then they act like that's what everybody should do. Like that's the most important ministry. Hey, if that's what God called you to do. That is the most important ministry in the world for you, but not necessarily for everybody else. Some people might want to go to rural countries. There's some people I know, they go to places out in Wyoming and they preach in all these different places where there's hardly any people. You know what? If that is God's will for them, that is the most important ministry in the world for them. But don't tell me I have to do that. I'm tired of everybody acting like their ministry is the most important one for all people. I know people, they're, they're missionaries to the Jews, and they act like that's what we all should be. It's like, hey, if that's your calling, bless your heart. I hope you get every single one of them saved. I hope all Israel shall be saved through your ministry. But at the same time, that's not my calling. And, and, and so don't act like your ministry is superior to other people's. That's, that's ridiculous. But that's the way people act sometimes, and it's not right. So I love it if... Your ministry is the most important thing in the world for you because it's what God called you to. But just don't make it everybody else's responsibility too. And so in verse 9, he goes on and says, well, let's, go, let's read verse 8 again. I think it's important that we read verse 8 before we read verse 9. It says, now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, for this cause, I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. That's a quote from Psalms 18:49. says, therefore, I will give thanks unto the Lord among the heathen and sing praises unto thy name. Romans 15:10. And again, he saith, rejoice ye Gentiles with his people 
That's a quote from Deuteronomy 32.43. It says, Rejoice, O ye nations, with His people, for He will avenge the blood of His servants and will render vengeance to His adversaries and will be merciful unto His land and to His people. Verse 11 says, And again, praise the Lord, all ye, all ye Gentiles, and laud Him, all ye people. Uh, and that is a quote from Psalms 117 and verse 1, where it says, oh, Praise the Lord, all ye nations, Praise Him, all ye people. Romans fifteen twelve, And again, Isaiah saith, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles trust. That's a quote from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. It says, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. So notice what Paul just did right there. After he mentions how Christ was a minister of the circumcision to confirm the promises made to the fathers, he goes on to show that the Gentiles would be included in that. God wanted the Gentiles to enjoy that and glorify God in that mercy. And then you know what he did? He quotes a whole bunch of scriptures, doing just like he's been doing the whole book, giving precedent from the old testament to prove what he's saying paul is not preaching new stuff here paul is confirming the truth of what he believes and what he's preaching from the old testament the book of romans is paul preaching and paul using scripture during his preaching and i agree that all of romans is scripture you know but at the same time it's interesting even as he's writing out scripture He's proving what he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost from the Old Testament. And he's showing that inclusion of the Gentiles. And, and I, I recorded a podcast today uh, about this, the, the foolishness, the stupidity of this Gentiles being plan B business that a lot of dispensationalists teach. That's absolute garbage. Paul just ran, I mean, hit several verses showing the inclusion of the Gentiles. Going back to even Deuteronomy. All the way back in Deuteronomy, he quoted a passage. And so in verse 13, when he says, The God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Okay? Notice, God wants us to be able to enjoy our salvation. Church should not be a place where we come and get our salvation challenged all the time. It should be where we come and get it confirmed causing us to rejoice even more. You know what I hope this study through Romans has done? I hope it has confirmed, it has further confirmed your assurance in your salvation. I hope it has further confirmed the, you know, your eternal security that you have in Christ. I hope all my preaching uh, throughout the years, that what it will do, it, the more we study, the deeper we dig into the Scripture, what it should do is further confirm your salvation. It should strengthen your assurance. We should, and, and I'm telling you, this preaching that just causes people to doubt their salvation and to wonder if they're really saved, I think is a bunch of garbage. And let me tell you, I refuse to have an evangelist who have the type of ministry where all their evangelism consists of preaching behind pulpits in Baptist churches. And they're under a lot of pressure to get people saved because everybody expects salvation when the evangelist comes. The problem is, what are you going to do 
if you don't get a whole bunch of lost people, come to the service. If they're preaching just to the church members. Evangelists are expected to get salvations. Nobody wants to report that after they preach a revival meeting, nobody got saved. So you know what typically they do? They get the church members resaved again. And I, I know many of these evangelists, I have heard many of them, that they are masters and experts of causing people to doubt their salvation. They confuse the daylights out of people. And I think that's a bunch of garbage. I am not interested in that. I don't think we need that. But uh, it's, uh, it's a very, very common thing. And listen, if these evangelists want to go get a bunch of people saved while they're at church in the week, they should go out souling with the pastor and with the church. But God forbid they do that. And, and they don't do it most of the time. Uh, a lot of these evangelists, you can't find them all day. You know, they'll show up in the evening and they'll fill their time slot and then they, you know, they'll spend, they'll stay after church long enough to maybe sell a few books, get a little more money out of the people, get their picture taken, help get them, give them some advertisement on social media and then they're gone. I'm not interested in those people. I don't have evan, we don't have evangelists like that and we have evangelists in that actually do soul winning, that actually minister to people. We have ministers in here. Not, you know, uh, motivational speakers, which is what a lot of these guys are. God wants us to enjoy our salvation. And he, uh, the God of hope, fill you with all joy and peace in believing. The fact that you believe on Christ should cause you to have joy and peace. Well, I find you believe, but did you repent of all your sins? Well, hey, nobody's going to have joy and peace if they got to repent of all their sins. Because, you know, there's a good chance, too, if, you know, by Friday night, you know, going to church every night during the revival meeting, things are pretty stressful, everybody's tired, the husband and wife probably had a knockdown drag out on the way to church. And so, you know, for sure, somebody's had a problem and they've, you know, got some sin they need to repent of. But that's, that's not what salvation is about. But yet, that's how it is with a lot of these evangelists. So he goes on and says, I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of goodness filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. And we should. We should strengthen each other with these truths. We should encourage each other and admonish each other. It says, Nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort as putting you in mind because of the grace that is given to me of God, that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. And so just like Jesus was a minister of the circumcision, Paul was a minister of the uncircumcision. They had the same gospel. They just ministered to a different group. Jesus stayed in Israel. Paul was going all over the place. And so when the... Uh, so when, so when he talks about things like dispensations and my gospel and things like that, it wasn't him saying that there are other gospels out there or other ways of salvation. It was a reference to the ministry that he had. And folks, while dispensationalists, the multiple gospel people will isolate these verses, when you look at the context of what he's talking about through this whole thing, there, there's no doubt what he's talking about. And there's no doubt they're misusing these scriptures, when they'll isolate phrases like my gospel. And so it's like the fact that he said my gospel, that means this was like his own personal 
thing. No, it was, it's a reference to his ministry. He was a minister of the gospel. Okay, because again, a gospel, a dispensation, a ministry, an administration, that was his life, that was his job, that was his calling, that's what he was sent out to do. He wasn't sent out to be a, you know, uh, a youth director and a minister of fun and a music director or something. No, the gospel. That was his thing. He was to preach the gospel. That was his ministry. That was his job. And so he talked about it in a very personal way, like my gospel. And so people hear that and they think that was some his own special teaching way of salvation that was specifically for the Gentiles. That, that is absolutely ridiculous. That is absolutely ridiculous. So verse 17 says, I have therefore whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ in those things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of these things which Christ hath not wrought by me to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed, though mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about unto Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and they that have not shall uh, have not heard shall understand. And so what Paul's saying right here, it was his desire that when it came to where he would go start ministries, where he would go minister, where he would go give his gospel, his dispensation, his administration, whatever you want to call it, he wanted to go places and to people who had never been witnessed to. That was, that was his desire. Now, not, and again, there is nothing wrong with someone having a target group. But Paul, I think he felt it would be most beneficial if he could just go and when he finds new people, you know, he could just start from scratch and teach them everything they needed to know. He didn't want to go build on another's foundation who maybe had a little different way. Maybe they had some flaws or whatever and he didn't want to have to try to fix all that. For example, you know, when I decided I wanted a pastor, I had to decide, do I want to take over a church somewhere or do I want to start a church somewhere? And I was like, you know what? I really don't want to go and try to take over another church or potentially take over someone else's mess or even build upon another man's foundation because, you know, I had a vision. I had a way that I wanted to do it. And to, for me, I thought I would rather just go and start something new because I don't want to have to go and try to tear down something too that somebody else built either. I, I didn't want to just go into a church and like blow it up and conform it to my image or anything like that. I was just like, you know what? I've heard so many horror stories about how long it took, a, you know, before a pastor felt like he could even pastor that church. I was like, I might as well just start a church. And so that was, that was my personal desire. Some people might have a different one. And it was Paul's desire to go places where uh, no one had heard. That, that, and, you know, that would be kind of cool to go somewhere that had absolutely no baggage when it came to bad teaching about Christianity. I, I, I can't even imagine what that would be like. Any, pretty much any place we go now, some type of Christian's already been there, but it's usually like Catholics, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses. Typically, when a country opens up to the gospel, the Baptists are the last one to get there. But I would love to see what it'd be like, and I would enjoy the privilege of going somewhere 
where people had never heard the name of Jesus. Because it's like, well, that, you say, well, that'd be hard. There would definitely be some challenges with that. But it would be nice to not have to unteach them work salvation, you know, all the other baggage that people have. Be nice to go someplace that had never been infected with Calvinism, never been infected with, you know, what dispensationalism to just from the beginning, start from scratch, teach them right. You know, because we do, we all, we all have a lot of baggage that we deal with. It's hard for us to get over sometimes. And so, uh, I, I don't blame Paul for wanting to do things the way he did. For he said in verse 22, for which cause also I have been much hindered from coming to you. But now, having no more place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come unto you, whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you, for I trust to see you in my journey and to be brought on my way thitherward by you, if first if I be somewhat filled with your company. And so Paul's wanting these people to know he, he did care about them, he was thinking about them, but he had other things that he needed to do before he could come to them. Because the next place he's going to want to go is Jerusalem. Jeru- and, and do you all remember what happened when we went to Jerusalem? We talked about that in the book of Acts. All of those things happened after this. And him going to Jerusalem, ultimately after a couple of years, would lead to him finally going to Rome and getting to these people. But it was a rough road to get there. But all of, that, all of those events that we see in Acts where he goes to Jerusalem, they accuse him of bringing a Gentile to the temple, he gets beat up, arrested, goes on trial. All that happens after what he wrote here in Romans. So just kind of a, something to think about. But verse 25, But now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. And this, this next verse is a key verse that some use. Now, I'm going to show you. There are some who use this next verse to teach that we should still be supporting Jews in Jerusalem, whether they are believing or not. There are people teaching we should be supportive of their military, that we should minister to them in carnal things, not just spiritual things. We should minister to Jews in carnal things. In Jer- not Now, Paul said, I'm going to minister to the saints. In Jerusalem, but this notice this next verse says, "For it had pleased him a Macedonian Achaia to make certain contribution for the poor saints, which are at Jerusalem." Because remember, in Acts eleven, we're not going to take time to turn there, but a great famine had come. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll briefly mention in, in Acts eleven twenty seven it says, "In these days came the prophets unto Jerusalem unto Antioch, and there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth throughout all the world." which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwell in Judea, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So in verse 27, it says, And it hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. For So there's a great famine that's come through the land. And does anybody remember... Not long before Agabus stands up and tells everyone about this great dearth. Does anybody remember what many of the saints had done in Jerusalem? They had sold their possessions and laid them at the apostles' feet. Now, why did they do that? They did that so they could get the gospel out to the world. 
Folks, that was huge. Folks, those people who gave in that offering, their ministry that they helped get started, that ministry that they funded, we are a part of that today. They are still earning dividends on what they gave during that time. But did you know all that giving that they did was done right before a great dearth that was in the world? So, man, that stinks. I can't believe God let them lose all that. Well, guess what? They would have lost it all in 70 AD anyway when everything got destroyed. It wasn't going to stay with them anyway. You know what? They did the right thing when they gave everything that they had away because they're still reaping rewards for it. So yes, God let it happen. God knew what was going to come and I believe God laid it on their heart for them to do that. But that was a great sacrifice that came at great cost for these people. And so... They, so one of the things they had Barnabas and Saul doing early on in his ministry, and Paul's still doing this kind of thing, is they would take up collection for those poor saints that were at Jerusalem. And why? Listen to what he said. It hath pleased them verily, and they're debtors they are. I mean, think about it. If you're from Rome or you're one of these other places, you got the gospel, you got saved, you've got a church in your area now because of what these saints did, who are now suffering. So that you're debtors, they're debtors they are. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to, unto them in carnal things. So, of course, it was appropriate for Paul to say, Hey, you know the people who funded everything to get me to you so you could get saved? They're suffering right now. You know what? We're wanting to take up an offering to go and be a blessing to those people. And let me tell you, you're their, you're their debtors. You owe them. You have been a partaker of their spiritual things. They should reap your carnal things. And so this was so appropriate, what they were doing. But yet, we have people today saying that this means, because we're Gentiles, that we have been made, uh, you know, part, you know, the, the Jews, over there in Israel today, in Jerusalem, apparently they get credited for giving us the Bible, for giving us the Messiah, for giving us our Judeo-Christian you know, way of life that we have. And so we ought to be helping them out. It's like, no, it was poor saints. Yes, those people were Jews. But they were people who literally gave their possessions so they could get the gospel. The people over in Jerusalem today reject the gospel. They're enemies of the gospel. They fight the gospel. They've not given us anything. Our country's already given them all kinds of tax money, our tax money all, all the time. We're giving them money all the time. And to teach churches, you have a responsibility to minister unto them and carnal things. Folks, that is ridiculous. That is ridiculous, but that is being taught by a lot of Baptists today. And... And it's kind of embarrassing because some of the ones promoting that the most are non-dispensational Baptists. Yes, non-dispensational Baptists are teaching people that Jews, unbelieving Jews, should benefit from our carnal things because we've benefited from their, their spiritual things. Uh, sorry, those branches got broken off. In fact, the branches over there were never on the olive tree. Okay, <laughs> That generation's long gone. So, folks, that, I mean, right there, Romans 15, 27 is a key verse that they use, and that is ridiculous. Absolutely 
ridiculous. And so there is, there's a massive difference between helping believing Jews who sold what they had and gave it so the gospel would get to the Gentiles and helping unbelieving Jews who are enemies of the gospel and persecuting Christians. So, not interested. So verse 28, When therefore, brethren, I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I will come by you unto Spain. And I am sure that when I come unto you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, and that my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints. And so notice how he asked him to pray for protection against those unbelieving Jews in Judea. He wanted protection. Now, was he protected? Well, he didn't die. You know, he didn't die, but he did he did get roughed up and get and taken to prison. But it was a good thing these people prayed for him. And then he said, That I may come unto you with joy by the will of God and may with you be refreshed. Now the God of peace be with you all. And it's always a blessing to see the personal things that Paul mentions in his letter. We're going to see a lot in this next chapter. But Paul had a real care and concern for the people he ministered to. He truly loved his brethren. He strongly believed in what they were doing. He wanted them to be refreshed. He wanted them to be encouraged because he knew they probably needed it. And we should always be looking out for other believers. Those within our church and even people in other churches. And you know, and as I was preparing for this message, and I'm, and you know, and I'm, I'm reading all these things about this ministry mindset. You know, I, I was blessed to grow up in a pastor's home. And so, uh, you know, the ministry life, the ministry mindset, it's really all I've ever known. And so sometimes I take for granted how foreign some of these things are to just your average American, average, average Christian. And this was some years back. I was doing some teaching on leadership you know, on, on ministry. And I was talking about leadership and, and I remember I mentioned in there, and this is something my dad used to say all the time about how people in church, you know, they typically vote on everything you do. They vote, you know, even if you don't cast a ballot, they vote with their attendance. You know, they vote with their giving. So for, if the church is behind something, typically they will give towards that if they or they will uh they will support whatever that ministry is in their participation and all that and i said that showing that that's actually a bad attitude you know when you don't like something in the church for you to just to kind of protest it that is not being of one mind that's not being like-minded that's not how it's supposed to be we are supposed to do what we do for edification and i remember one of the people that were a part of that not long after that, all of a sudden, they started, they were real unfaithful to church. They started missing everything. They wouldn't go out on soul winning if we were going certain places that they didn't like. And I remember finally, I was talking about it with them one day. And it's like, yeah, you know, I've noticed you haven't been around and doing much. And it's just like, well, you know, I, I don't really like when we soul win in these kind of places. I don't really like when the church does this. And I'm like, so you only just participate in the things you like in? And he was just like, well, you know, you said yourself, you know, everybody votes with their attendance and their participation. I was like, yeah, but I said, that's a bad thing. I didn't say that as a good thing. I wasn't telling you, hey, if you don't like something that I'm doing, just don't show up. Don't participate. So that's a horrible attitude. And let me tell you, 
for anybody who wants to be a minister, somebody who wants to be a pastor, you, you don't have, you cannot do that. That is not how these things work. We should all be looking out for each other. We should, obviously, primarily, we ought to be focused on our own church, on our own ministry. You know, I, you know, some people, they get so helpful of other people, they neglect their own life. You know, they're, they're so busy helping other people's families, they neglect their own family. Obviously, we have priorities. Your family is first when it comes to families. You know, you always have that person they want to help everybody else in the church while their family's a mess. Hey, you go straighten out your family first and then go be a help to other people. You know, you have other people too. They're all worried about what's going on in other churches and they don't participate in anything in their own church. No, you focus on your church first. You know, keep your priorities right, but we should always have an attitude of looking out for other people too. If we hear another church is struggling, we ought to be praying for them. We ought to send them words of encouragement. You know, we ought to, we ought to do something to try to motivate those people. I don't want us to ever have this isolationist attitude as a church too, where it's just, we don't care what anybody else is doing. No, we should care about what's going on in other churches. You know why? Because we have a ministry mindset. I'm glad, you know, I can't be the pastor of the world. And our church, we can't soul win in every city in the world. You know what we need? We need more churches. And so when we find out there's a church in another city, another place, you know what? We ought to want that to succeed. We ought to want to encourage it. And that's why, too, you know, I, often, I like going to other meetings and conferences and things, too, just because, you know, I want to encourage these churches that are having, uh, you know, these events and things because I'm glad they're there. I don't want those pastors to quit. I don't want them to get discouraged. And I've seen a lot quit in my years. And I want to, keep, I want to see people keep on going, keep on serving. And so if you can do that, if you can develop that ministry mindset, it will change your perspective on everything. If you do not have that ministry mindset, you're going to come to church with a selfish attitude every day. It's like, what, you know, how can I, how am I going to be, am I going to be entertained today? And, you know, is the pastor going to do what I like, what I want? You will be disappointed all the time if you have that attitude. But if you come for edification, there will always be somebody you can edify. And if you can't find anybody else, I promise I'm edified every time you're here. And I can use all the edification I can get. And so I hope this was a blessing and a help. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this chapter. And I pray you'll help us to be inspired by it. Help it to motivate all of us to uh, think about others and to have this ministry focus. Help us not to be self-centered, but help us to strive to uh, just look out for others and keep people motivated. And uh, we need more servants, not less. We need more churches, not less. And so help us to be looking out for each other. In your name we pray. Amen.